0: Culture do. What can culture do? What is culture? Culture unites us.
1: I'm very happy to be sitting next to Johannes Vogel. Johannes Vogel is a botanist and since 2012 has been the Director General of the Museum für Naturkunde. Uh, here in Berlin, and he's also a professor of biodiversity and public science at the Humboldt University, also here in Berlin. My name is Geraldine Debastian. I have a background in political science and internet freedom and digital rights topics. So coming from a little bit of a different perspective, but we actually have quite a few cross-cutting points, keywords such as open access and citizen science were already mentioned on the main stage today. Okay, great. Um, And that's exactly what we'd like to talk about with you within the next hour, which is why I'd kindly invite you to come up and join us here, because um, this is also the reason why we opted not to use this black box, but rather to sit a little bit closer to you because we want to talk about taking down barriers, barriers between um, citizens and scientists, why they are in fact the same thing, and barriers between institutions like museums and and the people who visit them. So I would like to start off the session by asking Johannes to give a few input words, about five minutes of input, and then we start in the debate together.
0: Thank you. Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me? Oh, fantastic. So, um, welcome and um, fantastic to be here and fantastic of all of you to make the effort uh, to be here. It's a great honor to to celebrate Martin, who um, has been a real inspiration, I think, for a lot of um, museum directors. The other funny thing is now that I hear my own voice, which i don 't really like, so uh, <laughs> okay, um, so what, what do I think is is necessary, and we 've heard some some ideas going in that direction already from some of the speakers, and that is we need to seriously think about how to change the power relationships um, between museums and and audiences, um, because the way how it has been going, and we heard, for example, this wonderful example of how the uh, Rijksmuseum is going to extend the reach of its collections. Well, that is, to me, um, an extension of the current power relationships. Um, you invite people, in part still, or in a large part still, on your terms, um, into, um, into your museum, whether it's um, in Amsterdam or globally. Digitization um, in its own um, is probably um, fake, um, but we may come to that um, and you can challenge me on that assumption later on. So, where do I, in my opinion, we stand? We live in a democracy that um, is stabilised by science and technology and the wealth created through that. This wealth um, is, in large part, um, drawn from the um, cheap exploitation of easily accessible natural resources. Now, that is coming to an end fairly rapidly, And it has also left a trail of destruction on the planet and on societies that is unsustainable. So we have to do it differently. And we need to find the will, the means and the institutions to do it differently. And there I see a completely new role for museums. Museums need to become organizations that enable change, that become trusted non-commercial spaces where people can science and society can find themselves discussing discoursing about smart joint solutions for progress the thing is science and i'm a scientist myself very often claim that they have the solutions that bring the world forward so for example science and richard nixon in 1972 declared the battle for cancer opened and that cancer would be beaten in a reasonable time. Well, today, 50 years hence, more or less, um, still a quarter of us um, will die of cancer. So um, the promise of science um, very often are hollow. Um, We need to find new ways to go about it. And we are not really tapping into the potential of a smart citizenry. On the other hand, if you want to stabilise democracy, you need people who understand um, how science as a process works. And that means um, it's not something that people in white coats do, but that is something that all of us can participate in. But how do we make that possible? We need to allow people to find their own way into science. So I'm doing a lot in the field of citizen science, which is a way to enable co-production Of knowledge in a lot in which is um, not surprising in my case natural science Uh, but there are plenty of innovations in um, other fields of science and I think that is a very important way so science needs to change museums need to change they need to learn to listen to what science uh, what society wants how science society wants to interact they need to change their ways smart and reflective and responsive. And I think that will be one of the huge challenges for us. But no place, in my opinion, is better suited to be opening up to a new contract between science and society than museums and especially and that you expect me to say natural history museums because we are genuinely science-driven organizations. I run a huge research enterprise with a public offer. And so the um, boundaries between science and public engagement are blurred with us already. If we now engage a larger citizenry, we may be able to facilitate some necessary change.
1: Thank you very much, um... I would like to encourage you to start raising your hands and adding your questions and comments from right now on uh, because there's a limited time we have. So please just make yourself visible and a kind lady will come to you with a microphone. Um, let's get a little bit concrete. Um, those are some very powerful messages that you sent out and you hinted a little bit of how you tried to do that in your museum. Who are the people that you'd like to engage in, um, in joint knowledge collection, creation for your museum that are not that yet there yet?
0: Um, so we've, we've started on a journey about 10 years ago to engage mainly with young adults. Mm-hmm. And um, that has now become a very, very powerful constituency in our museum. We now reach um, in structured programs where we try to have these type of dialogues and discourse about 2% of the Berlin adult population which I would argue is a huge amount of people Um, so um, if we already cater for this amount of people appropriately I think it's rather the challenge and the question then whom else do we want to get in let's start somewhere learn from that um, see how we can change in response to their needs and drivers and and then move on so I think quantitatively we've reached it qualitatively, I think there's a long way to go.
1: Can you name a couple of examples or innovative approaches that you've developed to encourage people to see themselves as contributors rather than just visitors?
0: So um, one of the things is that we have a massive collection of about 30 million objects, which I would argue is probably about 50% of all cultural objects here in Berlin. And we have about 150 people who come regularly um, Um, throughout the year to work in our collections, do co-production of scientific papers and knowledge um, with our scientists.
2: There's a question over there. there. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for your really, really very interesting talk. I have been listening attentively, but I have been wondering what you do with the rest outside of Europe. If you talk, for example, about natural science uh, knowledge, You talk about Western science, for example, on plants and um, nature. Uh, The whole world is full of people who have their own uh, categories, their own taxonomies, their own knowledge. And what do you do about that?
0: (laughs) Interesting question. Um, About 150 years ago, um, or even 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, a lot of this type of tacit knowledge was present in Europe as well. Um, So it's not just that different forms of knowledge on life is present elsewhere in the world. It's also present in Europe. Um, and um, modernization, um, or not modernization, the the change of human society from a rural to a, an urban society is killing that type of knowledge. It has killed it in Europe, it's killing it in China, um, it's killing it all over the world. Um, respecting and reflecting that knowledge is uh, quite interesting. But, so for example, um, it sometimes is also a bit difficult. So people will have an intimate knowledge to a certain number of animals that are of particular, or plants that are of particular use, especially in medicine for them. Um, But, for example, we have a huge collection of um, flies from Ghana. I don't think that there was any knowledge at detailed species level, ever present in any local society. There are only two or three people who can actually tell them apart today anyway. So um, I think we need to respect it. Um, But um, we we are in Europe, and it, it might be, in the first instance for me, more interesting to see what we can do to increase... Um, the knowledge and love of nature in Europe before I go elsewhere to a culture where I'm not that in tune with.
1: Uh, We had a very interesting discussion in one of the breakout sessions yesterday with a speaker called Wayne Modest. um, And it was very much about building different kinds of collaborations, also um, trans-continental collaborations. Um, Is that something that you think also digital Spaces can help, or how do you try to maybe engage communities that could add to the knowledge base that you 're building up here? Yep.
0: so um, first of all, we work actively with sixty countries sixty countries around the world. so we have, for example, a huge biodiversity discovery program in Indonesia and in Vietnam, and we work with um, local, local scientists there, so that is already part of of our DNA, but that does not. And in a way, um, the scientists in these countries are also not really that helpful in providing access uh, to the local communities there. Um, And I think it would be taking it a bit too far at this stage for us to actually ask for that type of engagement. But in terms of research, we are a global scientific infrastructure, um, 600 people from all over the world, per year come to work in our collections, and we, as I said, actively work in sixty countries so in that respect, um, we act at a global at a global level
1: there 's a lot of formats i 'm just sticking with this question for a minute where um sort of snippets of knowledge are put on social media platforms and people are asked to engage around that content in a different kind of way. Whether it's coming from citizens, like ask, I see this kind of thing a lot, like, oh, I found this, does anybody know what this is? And Mm. then scientists coming in to Mm. uh, clarify and bring knowledge. Or the other way around, Mm. um, for instance, Mm. in conservation, like nature conservation, there are organizations that encourage people to send in photos of a hazel mouse or some Mm. other animal to show like, What about that kind of engagement? We we have all of that. also using the digital space to yeah. do that. Can you give us a couple of examples of how you do that?
0: Well, um, <laughs> you're all in Berlin now, so um, on these things here, you can download an app called Naturblick. It's free. It um, uses a very sophisticated um, uh, uh, program where you can photograph a plant and the computer tells you what the plant is, tells you about the ecology, where you can find it, whatever you want to know. In the morning, when you wake up tomorrow, there are birds outside. Berlin is a very green city. Use your smartphone, record the bird song. This, your, this app will tell you um, what the bird is. So um, we do a lot of that. Um, Naturblick it's the name. But also, um, there are plenty of platforms where peer-to-peer, so amateur to amateur, or expert to expert, or expert to amateur, um, knowledge about nature is shared. There's plenty of this of this around. It's in part driven by natural history museums, in part it's driven by by other communities. So that type of sharing at a local, national or international level is is very active in our field.
1: So there's a lot that you're already doing and a lot of spaces that you're already engaging. Where do you see the biggest sort of challenges or barriers to sort of scale what you're already
0: engaged in? So um, I've, I've done a lot of work in citizen science and there are several levels of citizen science. So one is very closely aligned to what one would call public engagement, where you have one of, or two or three encounters with people, and then the relationship um, sort of parts again. Mm-hmm. And that, I would argue, comes in at a cost of about 20 to 50 euros or pounds or whatever per engagement. If you want to build knowledge communities out of citizens that then can work independently or really at eye level contribute to science or societal issues. You are talking about about 100 times that funding per Mm -hmm. engagement and that the current science system is not willing to put in. I would argue, however, that that is necessary, that science needs to scale back the breadth of enterprise and put about 10 to 15 percent of its efforts and funding into a true, meaningful eye-level engagement with citizenry, at least in the Western world.
1: I'm. Um, can we keep asking questions if you don't raise your hands? But do again. Feel free to come in at any point. Just make yourselves visible. Um, there's that. Maybe you can raise your hands. The lady on the left and on the right who have the microphones. Great. Thank you. Um, so. Um, There's a lot of open innovation processes, especially if they're managed correctly, that have proven to be very effective, especially in the health industry, where people are engaged in designing new medical devices or collecting certain kinds of data. Isn't there enough of a fundament given already to convince political decision makers that this is the way to go?
0: You're absolutely right. I think that the health sector is going to crack open the science system as Mm -hmm. a whole. And there are several drivers or well, two main drivers. One is the explosion of costs in the health sector that is crippling um, the Western financial systems. And secondly, that health is so close to all of us that we have such an intimate relationship that we want to be part of finding the solutions. And so this double whammy, um, the financial costs and the personal engagement and the personal driver uh, will crack it. And as you may have read, um, a very, very powerful... Alliance has now formed in the US. It's Berkshire Hathaway, so Warren Buffett, with um, then um, Stanley um, Morgan, Morgan Stanley as an investment bank, and I think Amazon or something like that. Mm-hmm. They three have teamed up um, to provide a new form of healthcare systems for their employers, and they will use um, the internet so that personal stories, um, personal data um, can feed into healthcare provision. Um, as well as probably artificial intelligence. So there is the issue of data security and how you feel about your personal data being used in these systems, but it is, I would argue, um, a full assault now on the established health system, and what I would regard as citizen science is going to be now seen as part of this solution.
1: It's a very interesting example that you cite, especially in the collaboration with this sort of internet corporation, one of the large ones. One of them may be less fear-producing ones because I've heard that Facebook has also had certain kinds of attempts of using user data in cooperation with medical institutions for preemptive health. So that, of course, begs a lot of questions about personal and data security. Um, Coming back to Europe, do you think that... um, I mean, obviously, we see those kind of approaches very critically and not always as innovative. Are we a bit too, perhaps, um, well-fed in our welfare state here to not want to be so experimental,
0: let's say? Um, so I'm a geneticist, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking a bit at the at the issue of um, genetic engineering and all this type of stuff, and it's... Absolutely amazing how split, especially German or other psyches, are on this issue. So when it comes to using genetics to prevent heritable genetic diseases in embryos, everybody says yes. When it comes to having um, genes in salad... um, most of Prenzlauer Berg and the area where we are situated here would say no um so um it's absolutely bizarre um this this um schizophrenia um about it, so they are very happy that it, that somebody meddles with the genomes of their children, but they think that they can have salad without DNA so um I can't really explain this type of um, um bizarre thinking, but it also. Sp- means to me that there's a lot of explanation or discourse that needs to happen in order for us to somehow um, find a way between yes. these two extremes.
1: Again, a lot of space for debate where museums can play an important yeah. role in hosting such fora yeah. without yeah. With being a kind of a neutral yeah. space to have them in. Yeah. Um, whilst we're on the topic of like digitally critical issues, um, do you ever feel that, because we have a very strong hold on, on copyright issues, and you mentioned mm. open access and collaborative mm. paper writing, do you feel that that's also a challenge in your area of work, that we live in a very... Um, IP and copyright um, focused world still. Also when it comes to, maybe not things directly related to your work, but um, if, if the lady from Google would have been here, I would have loved to have a conversation about panorama freedom and citizens being able to document their cities as, um, as contributions to public archives or the lack thereof because of the copyright laws we have today.
0: So I, I, I'm really only knowledgeable in this field on, on scientific publishing And there, the trend now is very, very, very strongly going to open access. Mm -hmm. So um, within the EU now, um, anything where you receive um, EU funding for, you now have to publish in open access journals. And that is the way to go. Um, I'm I'm chairing a big commission for the EU um, on on open science um, policy. And um, our recommendations have been adopted And so that means that all the member states now have to make everything possible they can to allow science to become a completely open process in all of its stages, from the conception of the ideas to the publishing of the results. And all the information that is produced after two years need to be going into open repositories so that anybody can use the information provided there. So that is a huge paradigm shift in the science system as a whole.
1: Absolutely and, and it's, taken a t- it's taken its time. I've, I've also been following the open access debate more from a digital perspective for at least 15 years now and it felt like there was a peak and then it dropped and then it was completely in control of let's say the lobby from the other side so how do you feel, where's your sort of hope that this significant paradigm shift is going to be able to take your work?
0: Um I hope that um, the whole open science and open access debate will make science more relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, Science is currently focusing, for good reasons, on the topic of excellence, but that should not exclude or should... A new relationship should be found between excellence and relevance. Um, We are focusing too much on excellence and too little on relevance, and that, I think, will now be changed.
1: And um, just to switch over to the other side, I also read, again, another example from your work that you, you really try to engage on this on different levels, so engaging with young scientists and collaborative writing, open structures in, in the uh, publishing process as one thing, but I heard you also had a project where you gave out disposable cameras to your younger visitors, basically to encourage them to learn how to document their surroundings. How did that go?
0: That uh, worked extremely well, um, of course, from a from an environmental point, we try to make these disposable cameras <laughs> as friendly as possible. I, I mean, we, we all live with contradictions, so even a natural history museum has to contend with that. Um, but um, from the engagement um, side, um, seeing the world, the natural world, through their eyes and what they regard as natural was incredibly eye-opening um, for us and for them and put it all together. And I think we even got a at a price somewhere for it. Um, so um, we hope to do a lot more on this on this stage. We have all we are all animals with big eyes, and our brain, large parts of our brain, are as big as it is in order to deal with visual information. So um, turning that away from nature, I think, doesn't help us um, in the development of our species. So focusing our eyes back on nature. Through a lens, or through whatever, I think is a, is a vital is a vital opportunity we cannot miss.
1: Absolutely, and also perhaps a little bit in this aspect of how to train or encourage younger people to understand themselves, like you said in the beginning, as scientists, as researchers, and sort of in this information overload day and age, understand what the mechanisms are to do that.
0: So we get. Um, as I said, we are focusing on young adults in our um, public programmes. But, of course, we have a huge programme dealing with schoolchildren. And in an ideal world, what I would like to have is a continuation of engagement with nature through the lives of people because there are gaps in it. Um, and we need to find ways to breach these gaps. So we cannot have um, young children up to the age of 12 being completely enthusiastic and engaged by the museum in nature and then once they're retired which maybe at 65 they'd rediscover their love of nature that would be a bit too late there's vital 50 years missing in the middle um so how to breach that gap will i think be the the big challenge
1: right um again ladies and gentlemen this is also your space so do feel free to um, let us know that you have questions or comments all kinds of welcome also if you want to share some stories about your work um, we started a interesting conversation yesterday about, and I think this is probably particularly relevant also to your um, museum, that museums should not be a place for, well, should not be a place where people think they should go just to see stuffed dead things, but a place where they should go to imagine the future. Um, how do you try to encourage that?
0: So imagining the future, of course, um, is is part of a sort of dialogue and debate debate program. I mean, one of the one of the best ones we had, um, and it's an EU funded uh, program um, on genetic engineering, is where we've discussed with I don't know about three hundred people um, whether or not we should get rid of mosquitoes or not. Uh, mosquitoes, as you know, mm-hmm. are a disease carrying um, animals. We have climate change, so. A lot of disease-carrying mosquitoes are migrating north, threatening interesting parts of North America and, and Europe. And um, we potentially have the opportunity now to wipe them out. And that was, that was a debate. It was actually quite a balanced um, debate where um, I think not necessarily a final conclusion was reached, um, but uh, I think everybody went away more informed about what the, what the things are here at stake.
1: And that's a format that you um, wish to continue on different topics, also some of the, like CRISPR and some of the other topics that yep. we touched on earlier. Yep. Yep. Do you find that you can live up to this expectation of being that neutral space, that people really come from different political opinions, from different kind of walks of life to engage in this?
0: Yes. Um, if we uh, tread as considerate as we do at the moment, I think we will. We will make mistakes, and then we have to see um, what effect that has. So um, next week, 2nd of July, we will have a very high-powered debate about the insect dieback Mm -hmm. um, in in Germany. And um, we will have some people who you would probably associate with a rather green or left political spectrum, but also the um, chair of the Agriculture Committee of the Bundestag, who is a, a very strong conservative, will be there. So... At the moment, we are still a place where different voices feel safe to come and debate. So long may it continue.
1: I hope it's okay to add this question. It's something that I, organizing events, also am asked uh, or need to consider a lot of the time, especially when it comes to nature conservation. You invite obviously very different kinds of political opinions and sometimes Opinions that are often seen as more left-wing and progressive, like Green Party opinions, can be very close to people, opinions coming from a very right-wing spectrum. How do you deal with the issue of inviting people that come from a very right-wing populist opinion spectrum... Um, to these kind of debates and have you considered how to manage that? There's obviously, on the one hand, this, we should include every voice and bring everybody to one table and on the other hand, there's do not give space, even more space than we've been given in the last years to that kind of um, um, very destructive and toxic opinion.
0: Um, fortunately, we hadn't had to face that question yet. Um, if it were to come to it, I think... Um, the team at the museum would be intelligent enough to come up with a solution for it. But we hadn't had a test case on that, so I can't really really tell you. But for us, as a science-driven organisation, a rational discourse and logical argument and facts, so our objects are objects that can be interpreted by scientific means. So if we go beyond that premise, I think we would have a great problem um, allowing these these voices.
1: Right. Um, You have about... Oh, yes, wonderful, please. Yes,
2: I'd uh, like to comment on that uh, point because I'm uh, very much also involved in what I call um, public science. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have many very... um, issues which are, of course, political, but also scientific. I'm from Carlsberg Institute of Technology, and um, I myself um, take the point that as long as these, especially if they are organized, as long as they are, um, even if we don't like them and we know their opinions, um, if they are also in our parliaments, then we have to give them the space, but we have to make sure that we moderate Um, the discussion, the conversation very carefully. We have to have uh, an intelligent um, balance of people who are there. Uh, But I think it is uh, the wrong way to go is not to have them speak because then they speak all the more somewhere else where they have no one from the public or from the the panel, um, to give other facts or other opinions. It was just a comment, because I do feel it's uh, an important uh, thing. We have to make sure we don't go the wrong way and give them more space by not giving them space, which is sometimes
1: what happens.
0: No, I entirely agree. Thank you.
1: Interesting. Thank you for that comment. Anybody else? I mean, It's obviously something that can be debated from both sides. If there's parliamentary representation, there's parliamentary representation, and sadly, little to be done about that at the moment. Um, but then, of course, there's the other argument that if it's not, di- you know, if there's not that representation, why should you, why should you open the door? So it's, it's a very ambivalent topic. Um, but that was a very valuable contribution. Thank you for that. Um, in the last couple of uh, minutes that we have left. Um, We had a very quick pre-discussion before we um, took up the microphone here. The most obvious of questions, at least from a layman's point of view, of how to get more people to access museums, since you were also, before taking your position at the Naturkunde Museum in Berlin, the Keeper of Botany at the Natural History Museum in London. Um, And so we had a bit of a pre-discussion about what difference does it make to have museums' entry accessible for free. And you said it doesn't. It's from the experience that you've had working in different um, European countries, um, not actually the game changer. How is that?
0: Um, a- again, I would be really interested to hear from people who have worked in um, museums, who've gone from, ex- from, from entry fee to um, access free or vice versa. So my experience with the Natural History Museum in London, looking at it um, now from from afar, is that it has been uh, close to uh, disastrous for the organisation. Um, it does not allow. So on the so, what does it mean? Um, the stranglehold of the museum. In London, in relation to generating income, um, is crippling. Um, yes, it had steep entry prices, far too high um, until 2001, and that excluded people. At that stage, the museum had 1.8 million visitors per year, and a visitor spent in the organization net of £1 visitor so a so as you might imagine, with other commercial activities, still the commercial activities produced a not too great a proportion of the overall spend of the museum in twenty fifteen or sixteen the visitors peaked at five point five million so tripling more than tripling of the visitor numbers um, with a five pound per head net spend. Mm -hmm. So a huge proportion. Um, So then you become slave to a mass audience that doesn't even have time any longer to enjoy what it sees in the organization. And I don't think if you have... so Like we, for example, have said um, in Berlin, we want a conversation about the here and now with the people who are here and now in political control. If I were to have to go access free, I would have very great problems trying to address this. Uh, try to focus my efforts on this type of audience, and um, in a time where the world is the world of nature is falling apart, and thereby the ability for us as humans to sustain culture and society. Um, um, I think we have a we have a quite strong mandate. Um, to be political and um, free access would remove that ability for me to, to fulfill that mandate.
1: Would you rather see political initiatives that um, give um, sort of free access uh, tickets or offers to particularly like low income families with children yeah. and sort of fixing it from the other side? We, we,
0: we do that already. So <laughs> 20% of all our visitors um, are access free. Um, we do Open weekends, everybody can come to the museum from five Um, o'clock. If you are on social security, you can get free tickets to Berlin Museums. So everybody who wants to visit the museum for free or cannot afford the museum to free, also all our educational programs are for free. So there's plenty of opportunities to come free into the museum, but not necessarily at any time you wish to come and enter the museum.
1: I want to just pick up very quickly as my penultimate question to you. Do you see yourself, you said an entity that comes to the political table with demands, do you see yourself as part, in a broader sense, of civil society representing the topic of area that you work for and and people in general when you take that political stance?
0: So um, we've had a a two-year-old a year-long branding and marketing process and trying to find out um, where should we position ourselves and so um, from January onwards this year our slogan is For Nature we want to become Germany's voice for nature by deepening our research, communicating our results and thereby changing society so I think we've made that very clear where we want to go and where we see our role and um, it seems to be working quite well
1: I'm very happy to hear that. I think especially in a world that is so driven by emotive, especially fear-ridden politics, um, having entities that come in from a factual base rather than from an emotive base are all the more important. Um, Maybe as a final question, if there's no final comments or questions from you all, then you've already said you're hosting a debate on the um, disappearance of insects. What's the next or other... um, exhibition, event, anything happening at the the Museum that you would like to invite
0: our audience to come to? So, we are going to do a huge experiment with participation. From the 8th of October onwards, um, there's going to be um, a very interesting threesome. So, it will be the museum, a um, visual artist who takes aerial photography of the world, which looks like abstract paintings, but if you look close enough, you see that They show the destruction that we cause to the earth. And the Joint Research Council of the EU, which is one of the biggest research institutes worldwide, with over 5,000 scientists determining everything from the length of a cucumber to the quality of your drinking water. And so we will have an exhibition starting in Berlin on the 8th of October, where we discuss things that are important to you, like the quality of water, air, the environment, climate, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, for six months, scientists from the Joint Research Council will be available to talk to the public via the web worldwide on topics and questions that you are interested in. So that will be an interesting experiment for all partners. Um, In a year's time, I can tell you whether we were successful or not.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, That was a very enlightening session. Thank you very much for being here today.